babies spend nine months in darkness before they're born. You ever thought about that? And you may think, well, they're not, they, don't, they don't know any better, right? Um, but actually, babies' eyes begin developing 17 days after conception. And then by week 28, babies are actually conscious and they can open and close their eyelids at that point. So for a good part of the pregnancy, they are in complete darkness. There's absolutely nothing to see until that scary moment of birth when all of a sudden you know, light shines and things are there. Of course, they can't see great, but they, something is, is there instead of nothing, right? And that's where we begin today. We're going to begin with the birth. It's not the birth of Jesus, not yet. That's tonight. Uh, but first with his cousin John. Okay, so verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Now, as a fun fact, just kind of a side note, this is not the purpose of the sermon. This is one of the many reasons that I believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It's little things like this. Okay, so God had commanded the Israelites to circumcise male children on the eighth day, specifically. And for thousands of years, no one really understood why because there was not any real theological significance for it. However, there is a very scientific reason why God asked them to do it or commanded them to do it on the eighth day. It turns out, we found out about 100 years ago, human blood requires prothrombin and vitamin K in order to clot properly. Infants have neither of those until a few days after they're born. But guess what? Both of those factors peak on the eighth day before leveling out lower for the rest of their life. Okay, so the, in fact, it is the only day in a male baby's entire life where that would normally be the case, where both of those things peak. And so... God did that on purpose. I think that's pretty cool, um, and they had no idea. But let's get back to the text. So uh, verse 59, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. Remember, Zechariah could not speak yet. And they inquired what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. So if you remember, Zechariah had doubted Gabriel's message. God had taken his speech until now. And so Zechariah obeys God. He names his son John. And then immediately God restores his speech. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. 
And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, I'm not going to say much about the verses that I just read, except that Zechariah is making a prophetic announcement about the coming of the Messiah. But he's going to finish with a prophecy about his own son, John. And we're going to focus our attention here because we're going to talk about Jesus tonight. This morning, we're going to use John the way God used John, which was to prepare the way for Jesus. And the verses that we're about to read at the end of this prophecy, they provide us with an important backdrop to the birth of Jesus. Okay, so speaking of John, Zechariah says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Now pay close attention to the next couple of verses. To give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, brothers and sisters, what would it mean for us today to prepare our hearts for the birth of Jesus? That's why you're here worshiping on Christmas Eve, right? You could be at home chilling in your PJs, right? Cooking something. But you're here on Christmas Eve because I think, I hope, you want to prepare your hearts to consider the birth of Christ. So how do we do that? How can we prepare our hearts for Christmas? And what I want us to do is I want us to walk back slowly through those, those previous three verses, 77 through 79, And I want to ask this question. Who is Christmas for? Who is Christmas for? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. So who is Christmas for? It is for the people of God. And what do the people of God need? they need forgiveness of sins. 
but they don't know that's what they need. And so the ministry of John was a ministry of revealing that need. We would say a ministry of repentance, to give God's people knowledge of sin, knowledge of salvation, in order to humble us and lead us to repentance, which is necessary for us to have a relationship with God. So Christmas is for people, first of all, who need forgiveness, which is all of us. Okay, Verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So who is Christmas for? It is for people who need the tender mercy of God. The word tender is a really interesting word. It's probably the right English word to convey the meaning here, so tender mercy. But the Greek word is this really cool word that, that sounds like this. Splankma. Okay? Which by itself means guts. <laughs> As in your inside parts. That's what that word means. And so Luke uses that word to describe God's mercy, but I want you to understand it's a very strange choice because he uses the same word in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, to describe the death of Judas Iscariot, where he says, Judas, falling headfirst, burst open in the middle, and all his splankna gushed out. So you see why this is an interesting word choice. Why does Luke use that word to describe God's mercy? I think it's because what we need to know about God is that He's the one who has the power to forgive our sins, but that His desire to do so comes from this place of, of deep mercy. That, that He is moving towards us. He's, he's visiting us from on high. But He's moved by this sense of mercy or compassion that He feels deep down in His guts. And of course, Jesus was willing to have His side pierced with a Roman spear for us. So, Christmas is for people who need forgiveness. Christmas is for people who need to know this deep, tender mercy of God. But now let's talk about the sunrise. Luke says, or Zechariah says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So who is Christmas for? Christmas is for lost people. Christmas is for people sitting in darkness. <clears throat> people who are sitting under the shadow of death. One of the best lines in a song that I've heard in a long time 
is on the Zach Bryan album that came out this year. Sun's gonna rise tomorrow somewhere on the east side of sorrow. Y'all know that? Some of you do. That concept has been around for a long time. It comes from the phrase post-tenebrous lux. After darkness, light. Which was the motto of the Protestant Reformation. It came from a Latin translation of Job 17, verse 12. And I want you to understand that as I understand this, this is the backdrop of Christmas. After darkness, light. The backdrop of Christmas always has been and always will be until Jesus returns, pain and sorrow, darkness and death. And if you this morning are feeling the weight of those things, then you are closer to understanding the meaning of Christmas than the rest of us. Do you understand Christmas is not just for happy people? It is maybe least of all for happy people. Christmas is for the people who hate it the most. And so if you're struggling this morning, if you're going to be honest with yourself, you don't have to be honest with us, that's fine. But if you're going to be honest with yourself and you're struggling this morning to find a sense of joy while everyone around you is celebrating, then you are exactly who Christmas is for. This faith has always been about light overcoming the darkness. From the very first moments of the Bible, right? Creation. God said, let there be light. And the dark void of nothingness was filled. If you really want to see the stars at night, what do you have to do? You have to get away from the lights of the city to drive out into the darkness of the country and there, in the darkest places, the stars shine brighter. Right? The joy of Christmas will always mean the most to people who are in the darkest seasons of their life. That's where the tender mercy of God, the forgiveness of sins, and the way of peace will mean the most to you when your strength fades, when your health fails, in pain, in tears, in grief. After darkness, light. Now, if you pay attention to most of the hymns that we sing at Christmas, and there's kind of a running joke. I don't think this is true for Josh. But like, a lot of worship leaders hate Christmas. Because even though the songs, we sing them and we think joy when we sing them, but actually the words of them are kind of mellow and somber. And there's a lot of minor keys. And Have you actually ever took the time to just read the lyrics and think about what you're singing? 
what you'll find is that very often it's this theme after darkness light. I'll give you a for instance, one of my favorite verses we sang, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. It's written by Edmund Sears 170 years ago. And it says this, And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. You see it? After darkness light. It's all over our Christmas carols. Pretty much every one of them. Something like that. And I know that for some of you, it's been a very hard year. Maybe you would say the worst year. And this may feel like the darkest Christmas in memory for some of you. An empty seat at the table. Not enough food on the table. I don't know what it is for you But I want you to know, Christmas is for you. And so often, this is exactly when God visits His people. Amen? Let's pray.